Kim Schmidt, Executive Editor of PharmaQuimant. Welcome to PharmaQuimant's Used Equipment Remarketing Roadmaps Podcast. In this episode, host Casey Seymour of 21st Century Equipment and Moving Iron LLC sat down with Rich Posen, an analyst with Ag Financial. Before we head over to their conversation, I wanted to invite you to join us this August 3rd through 5th for the Dealership Mind Summit. Based on the feedback of past attendees, our Dealer Advisory Board and the Dealership of the Year alumni group, we're bringing back the focus on used equipment remarketing. Register today at dealershipmindsummit.com. If this is your first time listening, you can subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, or TuneIn Radio. By subscribing, you're alerted when each new episode is released. In this episode, Casey and Rich talk about the global ag economy, including China, Brazil, and Europe, and what that could mean for business here in the U.S. This week, my guest is Rich Pawson. Rich is a great guy. I love having him on the podcast, and uh, I'm glad he's on this one. There is just, uh, on the economic front across the world, there's all kinds of things happening. you got Brazil just in a, uh, a, a lock here with China. It seems like they've been buying more and more stuff. Uh, from the Brazilians than, than anywhere else on the planet, and I feel like they've bought them about dry. I don't know that they can buy much more from them. Uh, that kind of leaves us to be uh, the next possible candidate to start buying some stuff from. Um, you also have China with the Hong Kong deal, and they're uh, kind of making the uh, making the parliamentary vote there that they are going to uh, basically rule Hong Kong the same way they rule the rest of China, which is significantly different than what they had. It's going to have some social unrest there. So the Italian kind of market, the whole Western European marketplace is, uh, is under a lot of stress. So the, uh, the pandemic has done a really good job of, of putting a lot of stress on stuff. And, and I guess as you take a look around, where are some of the hot spots you're paying attention to? And, and what are some of the ramifications you kind of see coming here short-term and long-term? Yeah, at least, at least uh, as far as like internationally and globally that can, uh, if it, it can impact the U.S. or at least be a headwind for the U.S. as, as we work towards reopening the economy and recovering here. It's still the big names. Uh, you want to watch South Korea. You want to watch Hong Kong and China and Japan over in Europe. Yes, it's still Italy, South Africa. And then, of course, we've got problems with Brazil. And the interesting thing is with uh, Brazil is that uh, their debt is 80% of their GDP. And some economists are making a big deal about that they claim for uh, emerging nations uh, that that's a dangerous level. Well, I don't know if I agree with that because I find nations around the world are well over 100%. I think what they're saying is uh, that, you know, a first world nation, first level, a more developed nation, probably could handle something over 100% better than, say, an emerging nation. But anyways, I'm, I'm kind of debating whether they're on the right track, but the point is, this is these are some of the things they're discussing throughout the banking system and Wall Street, uh, the overall business community, global traders and commodities, uh, that they just feel like this is a stressful level for them. And Brazil still has a lingering public pension problem. Uh, Bolsonaro has had complications trying to get things done the way he wants to do it, and the country's quite divided. And now you bring in the virus situation where Brazil is, what, the second now ranked in the world for mm-hmm. cases they've just shot right up. And, and their attitude was just take a wait-and-see uh, strategy, and it's you can see it's, it's, it's getting them, and it's got foreigners investing in Brazil nervous 
Uh, Brazil's just not on the right track politically, uh, business-wise, managing their nation, people-wise, society. And they've been pulling money up. And the Brazilian real has collapsed 30% against the, the U.S. dollar. And uh, a few minutes ago, I went ahead and checked the Brazilian real against China, Japan, South Korea, Europe. And you can just see the same, same thing on the chart. So the world is basically dumping uh, Brazilian real. Uh, or REI, as some like to call it. Now, the thing is, we have to keep in mind that Brazil is like half of the South American economic output. So there's a reason investors are getting nervous, is they're thinking you're really looking at the 800-pound gorilla right. <laughs> in South America, yeah. and you've got problems there. And that could be problems for all of South America. And then they're looking at the global economy, and it's been on shaky ground. I mean, my model is correctly called the, the top in the global economy back in 2018. And for Europe, the Eurozone, all topped out in 2018. You can just see it's followed through, trickled through, and it's just making investors around the world and here in the U.S. nervous. You know, is, is Brazil the next one and South America? And then, and as you mentioned, we still have problems over in Italy. And, you know, every other day I think they're fixing something. And then the other day, <laughs> days in between, I realize, no, they're not. If anything, they're making it worse. And then we have Turkey. We have South Africa. So all these things can bring down the world economy. And I'm really thinking, I, I don't think the world economy is going to bottom uh, to next year. And it's quite possible the U.S. doesn't bottom next year. But that should be easily, at least the U.S. should bottom no later in next year, whereas the world might even take a bit longer than that to, uh, to get its act together. Uh, another thing in Brazil, or the worries over Brazil, is they just got out of a deep recession. It was the worst recession in like 30 to 60 years and, and occurred back in 2014-2016. And interesting enough, you could see ripples around the world. I'm not saying Brazil caused it. I personally think a lot of countries were, were uh, kind of topping out in their economies anyways. But you can even find macroeconomic data in this country and Asia and Europe. Uh, when we had what I call a secondary recession, at least here in the U.S., uh, that occurred in 2015, 2016. And you can see dips in commodities, and then you can see how we pulled up out of that. Commodities actually started pulling uh, up out of it as, as well. So it worked, but for Brazil, for one reason or another, it was, it was worse uh, than the rest of the world. And, and, yeah, they were just getting back on their feet, and, and now they're running into, into this, uh, this tremendous headwind. So... Um, they also are talking that the Brazil GDP is going to be minus 5%. Well, you can say U.S. is also <laughs> probably at minus 5%. So you also have to realize, at least for the U.S., that we kind of created this ourselves because we were trying to protect ourselves from the virus. We heard a recession. So it's not your typical recession. And some statistics in the U.S. are already saying we're in a depression for the first time in the 1930s. Well, you need more statistics than that. You need a, a longer period within those severe statistics to try to truly define a depression. So I'm, not, I'm unwilling to say we're in a depression. And even so, it's just entirely different than what, what we're used to. Um, you know, we have to treat it as a new, new statistic to deal with uh, when it comes to figuring out where are these markets going. And it's just because it was self-engineered. It was, it was created because of this virus. And nobody could have predicted we had a virus coming. Uh, I even do cyclical research and viruses. Knew it was coming someday, but that kind of stuff doesn't tell you what here. Right. It was just simply yeah. saying it's gone on so long that it's obvious something's got to happen. But there was unfortunately no way of, of picking it. I'm going to try to work work on that more in the, in the future. But at any rate, yes, Brazil, you can see uh, China has come out and made comments that, you know, they don't see buying much from anyone uh, for the next several months here because they're working with Brazil. 
that's kind of a seasonal thing. I think most of the cash global traders in these grains and oil seeds would say, well, we already knew that, you know. But the point is, it was meant to make headlines <laughs> to wake up uh, U.S. traders and farmers and producers whatnot. Uh, but yeah, Brazil or uh, China doesn't really see see the need to do much. But I'm saying seasonally, they probably wouldn't have anyways. But they're letting us know that the U.S. is not the only store, right? So they're just right. letting us know this trade tension is still there. And it's not getting any better in the last few weeks. Uh, Trump's saying he might go even at uh, China even harder now. And you could just see soybean markets went down the day he said that. And, and a few days later, everybody calmed down and came back up. And it's just this lingering, lingering headwood. So if we switch from Brazil, we've already said, okay, Brazil's got a real problem, probably even dragging down South America. We already know over in parts of Europe and into the Middle East we got problems. And then over in Asia, well, if we switch to, to Asia, um, you can see South Korea has actually done a really good job, I think, of dealing with this virus. In fact, our daughter works over there, and uh, she was actually in Italy uh, just as the virus was starting to hit. I wasn't sure. My wife was over there, too. We weren't sure they were going to get out in time uh, to get back, and they got out just in time for it seriously hit over there, and they shut the, the country down. They both had to go into self-quarantine, and, uh, and then my uh, daughter gets out of self-quarantine, but she goes back to work. She works for school, and she goes there, and they said, well, you'll have to work here every day, but there won't be any students for months. <laughs> so, <laughs> a little bit different. But, uh, but she reports back how things are going, and she says, you know, the people are actually handling this fairly well, and they're trying to do business, and they're moving on. And she says, I'm really surprised uh, the way they're handling the, the cases, and everybody's got their mask, and they do their social distancing. And uh, it worked pretty good other than about a week or two. They started to have another scare. They were starting to open up. And right away, even my daughter said, yeah, there was a bar down the street. And the next thing you know, it's just loaded with people having a good time. And then two days later, there's people sick and they're dying. And, yeah. <laughs> and just, we're all in lockdown now again, you know. And so we're going to have these issues probably of trying to get back to the business here in normal life a little too soon. But... I fully understand why people are restless, but at the same time, I hope we don't uh, mess things up and have a serious uh, second wave. But anyway, I'm kind of intrigued with uh, South Korea. I don't really see too much on their their import-exports. I mean, everybody's been hurt, so the numbers don't look good no matter where where you look in the world. Um, But at the same time, I don't feel like things are going to crash and burn, at least with South Korea. And uh, Taiwan's got things fairly under control with the virus. Uh, I haven't really researched their economy or stock market as much, but I did see a semiconductor index out of Taiwan that a friend asked me to take a look at and, and really didn't see anything that's uh, saying, well, it's an end the world scenario, it's going to crash and burn. But then you bring in Hong Kong. And, you know, what, it's gone on for a year or more now uh, of issues in Hong Kong. Uh, and now, what, last week we get news that... Uh, China is going to come in with it comes in with their new security law and like you misstated you know it just brings them in under the China um, wingspan I guess you'd call it or something yeah. under their control and the whole idea when uh, Hong Kong started the when uh, the uh, I can't think of the name of the uh, law or, or treaty that was done and it went through and Hong Kong became more independent but they they weren't supposed to immediately come under China an entire rule. And, and you can just see that at least the young people over there are 
if it is older people, then at least 50 or more percent of the population really is concerned of being under total control of China. And this is what the prior demonstrations were to try to make sure they weren't moving too fast in that direction, that they could have some independence. Now there's security law. It must really shock them and really scare them that you know, they're going to be clamped down. They're going to be locked down on this. And now we have the White House coming out saying uh, that we may have to uh, take off their, their uh, trade agreements, that uh, they were getting special treatment. And so if we do that, that's going to hurt Hong Kong, which isn't going to help our relations with them, and it's actually going to hurt their business. I'm sure it's mad to be able to bit of protest to China. So we already have the U.S.-China thing going on and likely to escalate here in the next 60 days, in my opinion. But then you have this Hong Kong suddenly escalate. So it's now a three-way thing on top of it of U.S., China, and Hong Kong. And so um, for my podcasters, uh, for my followers, subscribers, uh, we're working on a critical point, a, a signal alert coming up here in the next 60 days. And I can't tell any more than that, but I... Uh, I've been looking at what are the fundamental drivers that's going to trigger that signal. And, uh, boy, this, this China, Hong Kong, U.S., it's top of the list. Even though I realize the virus is still big, um, we're, we're back to the whole trade war business is number one, I think. Um, so commodity traders and the stock market have to keep an eye on that. And then, of course, we got unrest in our own country here over the weekend. Yeah. And the stock market started off uh, gap down tonight. And uh, it's, it's been coming back, and uh, I think it's got a little more upside. But uh, like I say, I've got, I've got something in the works here, and it's making me nervous. The outcome's not going to be good. And uh, I think it's going to be uh, China, U.S., and, and Hong Kong's going to be the primary driver, even though there's plenty of other things. That's what's so crazy right now. It's very difficult to come up with a bullish list on, <laughs> on anything. You really are. Anybody's bullish, and I've, I've been bullish to stock market. I made some money out of it, but I've pulled out quite a bit, and I'm just going to study it and watch it. But, you know, if you go futuristic and you say, well, at least the fire side and the closed economies, we're going to get through that. The whole world's going to get through, okay? But how long would it take? What kind of structure? What's the pace? And then... When you set aside all that virus and economy issues, we still got this darn trade war issue. And and the point is, the whole world was due for a recession anyways. The virus didn't really wholeheartedly or totally, entirely create the recession. We were on our way there anyways. Virus just brought it to us at a very fast pace yeah. and uh, far more extreme, right? So, so in other words, there were already underlying problems. Uh, throughout the world, which some of it can be blamed on trade war, but some of it was just pure business and consumerism. Uh, we were due for a setback anyways, and it was just, it's just interesting how it goes when things turn bad. It's like one thing after another, you know, it just rains when it pours, you know, it pours when it rains, right? Mm-hmm. So, get back to Brazil uh, currency, because then I'll relate this to uh, the U.S. dollar in the world. Um, the Brazil now, of course, is 30% down, and at first I was concerned that this might be more U.S. kind of thing and maybe Europe because I understand it that as foreigners are pulling out, they wind up dumping Rei and Real, as some people say. And the, yes, the Brazilian government or their central bank stepped in and they sold, from what I understand, like $23 billion in U.S. treasuries. And on one hand, I feel like that's nothing. On the other hand, that could be sizable for Brazil. I mean, headlines, Wall Street was willing to talk about it. So they dumped a bunch of U.S. treasuries to basically raise cash to support their own currency, okay? So they were trying to defend themselves and trying to put up an image that, hey, foreigners are overreacting here. Uh, 
Now, at the same time, if you then compare the Brazil real to, as I said a few moments ago, with some of the Asian countries, the eurozone is a euro, and uh, you can just see your, the chart looks pretty much the same thing as, as with the uh, U.S. dollar. So it really is a global thing of, of pulling out of uh, Brazil. That they're, they're not pleased and concerned about, about the future. Now, you might think that's going to send even more uh, commodity business to Brazil as far as for their commodities and services. But the problem is when countries go into recessions, you also worry, well, am I going to get my commodities and where is my money and who am I doing business with? And it's just interesting. I don't, I don't know if Brazil will actually get that much more business, but it's going to concern all the other global traders. So it still becomes, you know, instead of being bullish for us, that maybe the financial side will cause an increase of, uh, of the uh, importers to switch from Brazil to us, you, you won't really see that. It's, it's actually still a headwind for us. So the lower, lower real won't necessarily help the Brazilian farmer down there as much as you think. I mean, if he's willing to sell, he's got, he's got the better, better price in real than he's ever had uh, based off currency. But at the same time, uh, I'm not so sure we're going to see a dramatic increase of business. And if it does, then, you know, we're gonna, basically U.S. is going to pick up business from someplace else that lost it to, to China to begin with, you know. To me, I'm more worried with the U.S. of being uh, just the overall global and U.S. economy is holding us back on, on commodity demand here, frankly, and not so much on that currency side. Um, but it certainly makes great headlines of what's, what's going on in, in the currency. So now what I'm trying to figure out is the U.S. dollar, what is the long-term point of view that we should have, or I should have at least. And I, I strongly believe the U.S. dollar index is going to put a top in by next year. I've had an alternate forecast I've worked for the last two years trying to pick this top, especially as of last year. And I've had two strikes. I just made a third call. So if, if the dollar were to rally uh, to a new high for this year, that will be strike three, and that forecast will be thrown out. The model will even throw it out on its own. And it's basically just going to say expect the dollar remain strong in the next year. And I'm now actually favoring that forecast personally that uh, we're probably stuck with sideways to higher in the dollar into next year and it's just because of all this upheaval around the world is actually creating demand for dollars and you have to remember most people do business around the world in dollars anyways right. yeah so even if they're not as happy with this as in prior generations of americans <laughs> or anyone in the world um yeah. and that, that's definitely a, an issue um uh, at the same time they still use the dollar and if they get antsy, they're, they're going to try to make sure they keep dollars. Especially if they get nervous over their own country, they're going to say, well, I'd like some dollars and gold underneath my bed. So, yeah. so, so I'm hoping that's going to keep the strength up there, whereas this would be the perfect opportunity as we start rebuilding the economy, open the economy. It would have been nice to, to actually see some weakness in dollar. It would help support our exports and give us a boom. And, and I still say, unlike many economists, I... Uh, I say a lower dollar actually is, is good for the world. That it's I realize everybody has to take their turns. It's always always been stated. Well, you got to let uh, the U.S. win for a few years, and then you let the other countries win for a few years, and it circulates around. I don't know. I, I look back like forty years, fifty years of history, and it just feels like to me keeping the dollar a little bit soft. I'm not talking really weak because that that can create other kinds of problems or be a sign of more serious underlying problems. But a soft dollar. 
it's it's just interesting. It, it doesn't mean we totally beat out those other countries. They tend to do well, you know. So I'm kind of a soft dollar fan myself, but I'm afraid I'm not going to get it a while yet. Now, I do think it's high probability. It's at least over 70%, if not knocking on the door, 90% probability. We'll see a lower dollar in 2022 to 2024. So for anybody on the commodity side saying, boy, we've got to get me really need a lower dollar. Unfortunately, we might be stuck with as like a stable to higher dollar uh, into next uh, next year, but like I say, uh, over the next few year weeks here, I'm going to actually be reviewing all of my uh, dollar modeling and see uh, see if we come up with anything different. Um, but I'm I'm concerned that we're going to have these elevated levels in the dollar. Yeah, probably just a function of trying to get this global economy back on its feet as well. That it's not just us. We'll get back to Casey and Rich in a moment, but first a quick reminder about the Dealership Mind Summit. Now a virtual event, remarketing managers and top dealership management won't want to miss this three-day intensive on used equipment remarketing. Visit dealershipmindsummit.com to register today. Let's get back to the program now as Casey and Rich talk about a possible recession in the coming years. So you've talked about in 2019 when, when you were on quite a bit and last couple of times here this time and, and the previous time here of, here of late um, you've talked about a recession and what that looked like and it, you didn't expect it to be too much of a too much of a recession we flirted with that um, verge of recession thing quite a bit um, it, it almost feels like every chance that the, the stock market really takes a, a downturn, there's someone pump, you know, the government's pumping money into it or programs come up, things like that pop up. I guess with all this money coming in to the economy, that's just, you know, printed money or it's just, you know, digital money or whatever it is that's coming in here. This last $6 billion that got pumped in here plus the other second, third tranches of that stuff that come through. I guess what's your thought on inflation? And, and where do you see that coming in? How does that stack up to what you see happening okay. with the U.S. economy versus like a Brazil and, and how that's going to soften the U.S. dollar like you just talked about? Yeah, I think, uh, and this is, I'm highly confident of this, and it's a high probability as far as assessing what the model is doing. I think you're going to see a bottom in interest rates this year or next, and it's the end of a 40-year bear market interest rates. I think interest rates... Uh, will rise all the way into the end of the 2030s. Now, I don't think interest rates are going to rise as well as some of the prior super cycles and during prior generations. By no means am I forecasting return like 10% interest rates, you know, even on the 10-year note or anything like that. Uh, it could happen, however, because we're printing so much we don't know what else could blow up. But I just see a modest rise, maybe with a surge in some volatility in the 2030s, but a modest rise this decade in interest rates. Now, coinciding with that, I think we'll see a modest rise in inflation. Now, inflation should have bottomed in 2008, 2009 with a great recession. But I'm kind of like speckling where inflation is right now, and I'm watching some of the government numbers, and I prefer to get an annual number from a variety of sources and, and pick out what I think is the best number, and I plug that in to this long-term analysis. If by chance inflation this year is lower than what it was in 2008-2009, and some of our economic statistics are so poor right now because we've shut our economy down, it is possible 
it's interesting. The model saying this is really just the latest, you know, last opportunity to put in a super cycle bottom. So that conclusion doesn't matter uh, whether it makes a new low this year or next or not. Uh, basically, the there's more upside inflation and more years of upside. It should basically trend right along with interest rates on into the late 2030s. And I've researched this back even centuries, uh, using North American and South American countries, but primarily U.S. And it's interesting that uh, there is a pattern, which I call the inflation cycle. And within it, you have inflation and then you have disinflation. And they're in, inside the inflation trend, early is good, late is bad. And you can actually, if you want to know when did this last occur, it was 1950s into the 1970s, even in the early 1980s. And then you can see we killed inflation. And it's a good thing we did it because the late inflation, if it's unchecked, can turn into hyperinflation and then you have a depression your country basically self-destructs and I, I call it burning up the, the economy is too hot from too hot of inflation now you then begin a disinflation trend and early is good it's pretty much what we went through in the 80s 90s a little bit of the 2000s but in the 2000s we went into late inflation late disinflation is bad and you have the risk of turning into deflation which means we produce way too much everything's gets due dirt cheap. We have a recession that turns into a depression, so everybody's working cheaper or simply has lost their job. So things have to get still cheaper to try to balance things. And it's just another form of self-destruction, but I call it something cold. It's like, you know, we've got a pneumonia <laughs> type right. scenario. Yeah. I have a severe cold and uh, going to have a cataract arrest from it or something. So I think... Um, I think that's why Ben Bernanke showed up. I think the Federal Reserve knew the system was burning out. They had to be prepared. They were ready for an unstable financial situation. And so Ben Bernanke gets the job. And and it's interesting. He was on a job a year before the Great Recession hit. And he said everything looks fine. And a year later, we're in the Great Recession. And there's no doubt in my mind that if we had done nothing, we would have had a 70 90% drop in the stock market and uh, probably would have had uh, unemployment over 20%. Some people say we were there anyways, and they just didn't tell us. But it still wouldn't, ideally would not have been as severe as the Great Depression, but it would have been very close. And I correctly forecast that the model would be off and forecasting 70 90%. It was going to be a 40 to 60% drop in the stock market, and it turned out to be a 55% drop. And it worked. And, and the reason was, is I related anything and everything I could to these business cycle models. I could see the engine, the machine had changed over time. And if anybody could keep it from being severe, it was the U.S. And lo and behold, we did the best job anybody in the, in the world. may not agree how we did it <laughs> with all the bailouts and the rich right. got richer from it, but it, it worked. The, the stock market did not fall apart, and, and Ben Bernanke's primary goal wasn't to create jobs, even though that was part of the mandate. His primary goal was to make sure you save the financial system so we can get up tomorrow and go do business, Okay. And that's what he learned in the Great Depression. There was suddenly just no money. Okay, You couldn't do anything. He made sure the money money was there. So, like I say, it worked, but I fully understand the arguments of do we need a different system or not. <laughs> yeah. um, so, so, to me, I, I overlay that and I say, my gosh, you know, this whole inflation cycle, which has nothing to do with the business cycle, well, it's its own separate thing. I said, I can find these business cycles to match to that. And because this inflation cycle, I'm not so sure you can pick the year and I'm not so sure do we know, are these trends going to last 20 years, 30 years, 40 years? It's, it, they're a bit, they're highly variable. But you can see this general 
fluctuation that it's either inflation or disinflation or nothing else. But just have to remember they can end badly at the end of those trends on, on those turning points or reversals. But as I take that inflation cycle, it aligns perfectly with what I'm doing. The business cycle model saying it's time to turn to inflation. So now getting to more of what most people would probably understand and find the most interesting is really that we printed an awful lot of money. And what have we learned throughout our lifetimes? And my money you print, there's a good chance of creating inflation. Now, here's the thing. We should have had higher levels of inflation in, in past decades when you look at the amount of money printed. And yet here the business cycle model is saying, no, it's not going to work that way. And it was right. It didn't work that way. We printed, we've been printing money, it seems like, forever. Why then from 1980 to now that the uh, rate of change of nominal GDP per capita, or it's just another way of looking at GDP, why is that slowed from 1980 now if we're more pro-business than ever, more pro-capitalist than ever, we've got lower interest rates, we've got more money than ever? Why can't we have a glorious economy here, you know? Why isn't it a great economy? And it's just not there. You can see it. We've just really have slowed. Well, I think part of the reason is a lot of that money printed just seems to bypass the middle class poor, bypass small business, and go straight to the rich, goes to the bankers, go to Wall Street. Now, on the bankers, obviously, they're, they're making loans to small business, so it's there, but I don't think it's quite as efficient. And a lot of these bankers, they trade proprietary money. They trade for their own bank. They trade, it used to be, they traded just currencies. And most of, most of the currency trade is just pure speculation. It's just trading. But the interesting thing is that over time, especially going back 1980s, 90s, even under Greenspan, they deregulated the banks enough to, so they can trade stocks, they could trade commodities. I mean, some of that stuff since the financial crisis has changed. They've been, they've been, uh, they tighten things up to where the banks can't do anything and everything they want. But I just think a lot of money just gets churning in these markets doesn't really come out there to do anything for the middle class and poor. And I think that holds back inflation. So what I'm wondering, if I'm going to be right on this forecast of a pickup of inflation and it relates to printing so much money, are we finally doing something where that money has to flow into the greater portion of the population and more small business and consumers, or actually is something coming down the road politically here this decade where we are going to change some things to, uh, to help with this inequality? I, I don't know what the final story is. That's what kind of drives me nuts with these business cycles is you can actually forecast the direction of the fundamentals and the economy without knowing the true story. <laughs> and you feel like, well, I could write a book and look like a genius if I could just get all the details. You know? right. yep. But it's just interesting. It's always a different story. There's something new to it. But in the end, it's still the same economic fluctuation. You still get the same commodities prices in terms of how they fluctuate. And I often say the reason is, especially prices, they can only do one or two things. They're up or down. So you can keep changing the story all you want. They're still going to go up or down. <laughs> and commodities usually are range-bound, so they're only going up so much and they're only going down so much. Uh, so I, I personally get it, but it, it is difficult to, to come up with a far more detail. This is the exact story to watch in the next 20 years or something like that. But I, I'm convinced we're going to see the higher inflation. I think uh, now the, 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 why I want to start reviewing the dollar here is if the interest rates are going higher in the next 20 years, that would normally support the dollar. But if inflation is going higher in the next 20 years, that would normally lower the dollar. So I'm going to back and look at the 1950s, 1970s, which is, gets a little uh, touchy here because some countries didn't have currencies, and then you have to you have to break the eurozone back down to the individual countries, see how things are going. It looks like to me the dollar actually was able to rise 
but we still had rising commodities, rising real estate. People had more uh, more money in their paychecks. They were getting paid more. Stock market went up. Didn't go up as great as today, but it went up. And they were getting more money on their CDs and savings accounts because the interest rate was rising. So you can get all these things to kind of go along at the same time. Whereas if you look from 1980s now, they were more broken up and the stock market kind of stole all the thunder. All the money went to the stock market. Which most of the money looks like to me. Right, <laughs> so, yeah. So to me, I think we've got a turning point. Maybe the stock market doesn't perform quite as well in the next 20 years, but I'm still a young old bull. I think there's a lot of money to be made out of the stock market. Uh, but nevertheless, it might cool it cool it a little bit, you know, temper it a little bit. And then we pick up where the middle class and poor, for some reason, has a little more money to spend, and that's where it's going to help, help commodities over time. But as a commodity producer, you're also going to see your cost rise. So, you know, it's never easy. So <laughs> it's never, never right. a clear win. But, right. but I'm kind of encouraged of that forecast. And, boy, this amount of money that's been printed lately, it's, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. And it's still pr- but I can remember back, I think I was only like 8, 12 years old, something like that. And my dad, he was always talking business. And he run, my dad owned several farms and uh, real estate business. And he had a battery trucking business and all and uh, so he's really into talking business, you know. And he'd be talking with his buddies, and they would be saying, uh, printing too much money, the country would be destroyed in just a few years. And, and I was always the contrarian of the family. I'd just take the opposite side, no matter what. So I'd say, no, nah, there's, there's no magical number. And, of course, they'd say, you're just a kid. You don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so I'd go to college and go to economics and business school, and I'd go back to the farm. And I don't know, I've said for 40 years now, we haven't printed enough money yet. Nobody knows what that magic number is that's going to put us under, you know. And here we are. We're printing more. Is this the magic number? I don't know, but I can tell you nobody else knows because yeah. I've watched them, and they've been wrong and wrong and wrong. And uh, I don't know what the answer is. You would think someday, yes, we've, we've got to print too much. And that's what I'm wondering in the late 2030s, early 2040s. Uh, for five years now, I've told people that's probably going to be my mother of all cell signals here. I, I think maybe, it, let's put it this way, if it's because of too much debt, too much money printing, that's when it's going to strike. But I'm not convinced that's the story. I, I'm more concerned that something else that starts it, then we just simply have too much debt and it, and it makes it worse. But wouldn't that be a ripple effect, the, the too much debt side of it? I mean, yeah. your theory that you've got is, is the first time I've ever heard anybody say that, the theory of, you know, the reason that we haven't seen inflation yet is because basically it, it hasn't hit the market yet, right? It's been someone's, right. it's been stockpiled someplace else and they're loaning it out a little bit at a time and those kind of things. And I'm really wondering how, maybe maybe we've hit a, even if, even if we couldn't do anything uh, as a society, and as a political side of trying to boost the middle class and poor, that would then translate to higher inflation. Is it just possibly just flat out printed enough? You know, I mean, if you keep, if you take a reservoir and you just keep pouring water and then eventually you're going to overflow yeah. the dam, if you can increase at a fast enough pace, right? Right. And yeah. is it finally going to work that way where we really don't have change in the system? Finally, it's going to break loose and, and we get more money in. But I, I really am concerned there's just too much money. Uh, you know, if I'm a rich person, and, I, and I've had conversations with a few billionaires in my lifetime, and I just, it's, most of them generally agree with me. If if you get a huge sum of money, pretty soon there's so many, so many factories you can build. There's only so many farms you're going to buy. There's only so many people you can employ. Eventually, you can't help the economy. And right. I, I think we've achieved that, you know. Well, where do you go with your money? And you want to keep your money safe. Well, the answer is 
you want your money to be liquid. So you put your money someplace where you can get at it really fast. So this is why it just keeps pouring into U.S. Treasuries and bonds when they're not making any interest rate. I mean, right. if the U.S. goes to a negative rate like Europe, that means you're paying the government to take your money or paying the Treasury, right? Right, right. And, yeah. And, and, and that's insane to me, but it's, you know, it's been done around the world. It's been going on for a while now. And it just tells you how, how much money people have, and they want to put it someplace where they think it's safe. They're going to get it back, even if there's a cost to it. Please get most of it back. And I think that's what I think. Well, then they also put money in the stock market, and, and it used to go into commodities, right? The moment's died out. I'm, I'm thinking that may be coming back here soon. But, you know, the point is that's just being traded around in markets. I'm not so sure it creates jobs. It's just money flowing around and, and trading, and somebody, you know, they're making a profit. But if they never pull that profit out, then all you're doing is they're almost like creating their own printing press. I wish wish I had one. I sometimes think I'm the only one without a printing press. But I, you know, you could just see how they're building more and more wealth on the books, and it's not really coming into our economy. And I, I'm really getting concerned about this. It, it's probably going to be one of the driving factors here in the next 20 years if we don't fix some things. And I just wonder, I, I realize some people are fearful of inflation because it is a high cost. And the older I get, I, I, in my younger days, I used to say, I don't care about inflation. I can make money. I'll buy gold. I'll, I'll buy corn. And uh, so keep the inflation high. I don't care. Well, you know, the older you get, pretty soon you say, well, gee whiz, I sure would appreciate a zero inflation because it means my retirement money is going to buy me what I thought it was going to buy me, you know. Yeah. And I get I get that part, but at the same time, I come to the conclusion, yeah, but if you don't give other types of people in your economy a break and the and only break they may get may show up in these inflation times. So my gut feeling is this inflation thing could work whereas I was starting to wonder, uh, but now with the amount of money printing I fully get it and I, I'm seeing seeing a few of these billionaire hedge fund traders now saying they're actually hedging for inflation. They hadn't done it in a while. Some of them are doing it through bonds, but some of them are saying they got gold and uh, some of them are now had been against Bitcoin and the cryptocurrencies. They're now going to buy a small amount. Now, a lot, I think one said 1% of his portfolio would be in Bitcoin eventually. And but his idea is, hey, if Bitcoin ever did double, triple, quadruple, like everybody said, that means 2 3% uh, going on all his money and his funds and his personal wealth. Well, heck, that's going to you know wipe out half of the rise inflation probably. Right. So I get it. He doesn't, he doesn't really need to put much in to get a nice little... Nice little inflation. But the point is, you know, and, and even one of them said, uh, you know, he's not a big uh, fund manager. I think he has $10 billion. He's under management, but he's worth $6 billion on his own. And he just said, uh, what, what's been done by the Treasury and the Federal Reserve right now is like bringing a nuclear bomb to the, to the war. Uh, that's how he felt, how much money they printed. Yeah. And, and then think of the consumer. I, uh, gosh, I wish I wrote the number. I was looking at a chart here just uh, this afternoon. Um, the savings uh, in the U.S. by the average citizen is just soared. I want to say it's record, but I, I better be careful of that because unfortunately I didn't write the number down and I want to make sure I didn't, uh, I might have only seen a piece of the chart, but all I can tell you, it was right straight up and it makes perfect sense. If you're going to shut the economy down, you can't go anywhere, you can't spend anything uh, except online and you're scared, you're nervous of your job, your future, what do you do? Any money you get, uh, beyond your just standard living expenses, you're going to salt it away. And now that's good news for the economy down the road because eventually they're going to pull it out and spend it. And the middle class and poor prefers to spend rather than put it in the stock market. <laughs> so, so there's some good news coming down once we can get our feet back to, uh, 
on solid ground here. Um, and that can perk up some inflation. Okay, right. that that would be what I call short-term inflation. Uh, right. You kind of get a pickup, and then it, and then we kind of settle down, calm down. Uh, but the point is, uh, there's going to be some money ready to be spent on things here eventually. So what do you, what do you th- so we're talking about this print money thing, and it's not exclusive to the U.S. I mean, the EU's done it. In any any country in the world is is like you said, eighty plus percent of its GDP wrapped up there. So. I mean, really, the uh, the entire world has a they're paying credit cards with credit cards. So, I guess yeah. what your I mean, the overall world economy. I mean, I mean, at some point, when everybody's in the same mess, does it really matter? <laughs> Very good point. <laughs> and I think that's what's coming here in about twenty years, maybe a little less. Uh, right. with this super cycle that we're finally going to get to a point where we just say, you know what? It doesn't matter if this system we've been on for fifty to hundred years works. We're right. just sick and tired. Right. We want something different. And and then of course it's just you know there's valid analysis, research done by people that have wondered for years that uh, doesn't matter, it's not going to work someday, it can't work, you know, and, and, and I will say, my conclusion after 40 years of studying all kinds of economic platforms and then studying what, uh, years ago I used to try to keep track of 30 commodity markets advising people every day and what those markets were doing. And I can tell you when it comes to economic platforms, <clears throat> nothing works, okay? Everything burns out and there's always someone left behind. And if you're not wise enough to take care of that, someone help them out a bit, pretty soon it becomes a nag on your economy and then things get out of alignment. It's just, it's, it's, it literally is like a combine or some other machine right. uh, where things, something's not working quite right in it. You're not going to get top performance. Well, if it's not taken care of someday, it just breaks down, right? Uh, yeah. And it might be a minor breakdown. Okay, it's in the shop for a couple of days, no big deal. It might be a major breakdown where you say, well, I gotta go out and get a brand new combine. <laughs> We're right. done, and yeah. that's what's got me a little nervous. By the late 2030s, we're going to be on the cusp of uh, hey, <laughs> we need an entirely new uh, combine. And in the meantime, I'd rather keep learning and trying different things. And that's what I get upset on the political side, both left and right. It's like, gee whiz, uh, can we get some fresh new ideas here and, and tweak? And don't be afraid to tweak. It's kind of like we're afraid to truly try. Uh, new things and the whole world's going to wake up to this because they pretty much followed us over the past hundred years and just print 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 and a lot of them are, are far more in a dangerous situation than than we are okay uh, at least at least we have the backing of the world still wants to use our dollar and, you know the day they walk away from using our dollar we got a problem right. um and at least we've got that going for us whereas a lot of countries they're they're up and down in the popularity of their currencies and how they use them so I think, um, you know, right at the moment, I'm actually optimistic, bullish here. But I think, uh, you know, I do see problems down the road 20 years from now. I fully understand why some think, you know, the great crash is coming any moment now. <laughs> I see the statistics there. But I think we're probably going to keep this machine uh, moving along here a while yet. And, uh, and now I'm just thinking we got a little bit of a different twist. Uh, boy, for some of these youngsters investing in the stock market and starting out on farms, just getting their, uh, cutting their teeth in farming and producing commodities and whatnot, uh, you know, they, uh, they haven't seen inflation times. Right. They have. It was when I was a child and they didn't even know what it was, you know. Yep. But I don't want to scare anybody on inflation. I really think the way the machine's working here, it is going to 
I just don't see super high inflation, at least in this country. But eventually, maybe some variety of other countries blow up, and it comes back and gets us too, you know. Like I say, in 20 years, I'm more than willing to paint a dark scenario. But <laughs> for the moment, I'm trying to be an optimist and saying, Bob, we've got a different kind of bull market coming this decade. It's just going to get started, and it's time to get the interest rates up a little bit and, uh, and perk up inflation. And I think if we're going to be in the early inflation phase. And I think it's going to be generally good uh, for the middle class poor, not so much for the rich. And, of course, we could increase taxes on the rich while we do that. That's been part of the history behind this. Um, but I think uh, there's reason to be uh, somewhat optimistic and do some business here. But, uh, like I say, we still got to slug through this recession we're in right now. Yep. And, uh, and it could, something could go wrong. That we're not going to bottom out to next year in the recession. But I think we're going to bottom out the fourth quarter of this year, first quarter next and but the rest of the world might drag on longer and especially in the commodity industry i think we really need the global economy get back on its feet get going that um, just just the u.s leading the way isn't isn't enough to really get that demand singers for us and firm up these commodity prices so so i'm a little bit uh, boy I, I keep getting emails and comments all the time when are you going to get really build up on commodities come on we need a break here and uh, I'm a little nervous. We got some sluggish times for the rest of this year, and uh, if we get good crops, that makes it that much worse. Yeah, but I think a turn turns coming. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to be an optimist. I just don't uh, see it today. Here, you know, we still got to deal through this and, and work through it. But I like this inflation scenario uh, more than I have in a while, and I, and I, with others saying it's primarily because boy, we printed a lot of money here. Now it's just a matter, does it actually go somewhere? Because I really am concerned somehow or another it gets clogged up. And the, the way the economy works is the way you print, you print your money and you pump it out. And it's just like going down many highways, and roads, and streets. And, you know, you look at a map, you can see you started out with one big highway. And the next thing you know, you're looking at 100 different streets as you break it out in town. And just think of each one of those streets as some kind of business, some kind of consumer, somebody going home with a paycheck. How many times do we block off streets, either because of an accident or a disaster, or it was just because we needed to do construction and had to make some changes? Well, that sends everybody somewhere else, which might create good times for someone else. It might create not-so-good times. Well, that's really where we're at right now. we got a bit of a problem here where they keep running money, but we're not seeing that. Uh, they also call it pushing on a string. You know? Yeah. That's, uh, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's a good analogy. It's, yeah. Uh, but boy, this time around, I'll say one thing: the Fed, the Fed, they they must have quickly said this could turn into a complete shutdown of your economy, and that's you know, and they just said throw everything you got at it. So yeah, and, and looking at the stock market, they they've won for the moment. Maybe something else can sideways and go away, but uh, there's more than just the stock market and the bankers and the rich. You know, most of this country is middle class, poor. They're consumers. They're small business people. And they're hurting. Yeah. But uh, knock on wood, though, it's it's going to turn and they're going to get going. All right, Rich. Uh, good stuff as usual there. Why don't you give folks a little insight on what your Critical Point podcast is about? Okay. So the Critical Point podcast is um, provides analysis, models, alerts, signals, even my personal opinion on various markets like grains, oil seeds, maybe a little livestock and a little bit of the New York softs markets. Uh, we do a little interest rates from time to time and a lot of discussion like we just had and when we get into inflation, we get into economies. 
Uh, and then a lot of uh, stock markets, specifically U.S. I have some really good performances going on here from uh, all the way back from the 2010. I rode the uh, stock market bull market very well. So stock market and a select group of commodities plus economy. And starting next year, I'm going to be looking for weather risk. So I'm also going to put my own personal slant on uh, cyclical climate events and risk to crops. And you can find it at criticalpointpodbean.com. And there's a free trial as well as just lots of free things and old uh, samples and whatnot to get a feel for it. But I think uh, people will find it, regardless if they're interested in short term, they're really long term in the markets. They're just interested in the overall economy of uh, commodities, stock market, that kind of thing. Right on. Okay, and if folks wanted to reach out to you and just ask you some questions about what's going on and what they hear on this podcast, what's the best way to do that? Uh, use an email, rich at ag-financial.com, and then they can also find me at Twitter at rich underscore possum. Right on. Make sure you check out that Twitter feed. There's lots of good stuff that comes out there on that. And uh, Well, Rich, it's been a great conversation as usual, man. I, I really enjoy these these conversations, your wealth of knowledge, and uh, as you can tell, you've got a, got a lot of research going here. So thanks for being on the podcast, man. Thank you. Thanks, Casey and Rich. We've got even more used equipment remarketing resources that we're sending your way. In addition to this podcast, we're also tapping into Casey's expertise across all our informational channels. If you've got a question for Casey, I'd encourage you to head over to farm-equipment.com backslash asktheexpert. Submit a question and we'll get Casey's answer to it up on our Ask the Expert blog. And don't forget to head over to dealershipmindsummit.com to register for the 2020 Dealership Mind Summit, now a virtual event. You can keep up with the latest industry news by registering online to receive our free newsletters. Visit www.farm-equipment.com. For Casey and Rich, as well as our entire staff here at Farm Equipment, I'm Kim Schmidt. Thanks for listening.